3: Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home, so you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, we are in the midst of an astonishing new culture war playing out in our streets, workplaces, universities, schools, and homes in the name of social justice and identity politics. Narrow sets of interests now dominate the agenda as society becomes more and more tribal, Identity issues are fueled by the propaganda media and social media presenting a kind of mental malware designed to corrupt our thinking. We need to bring common sense into the discussion around this generation's most complicated cultural issues. I'm pleased to welcome my guests, Douglas Murray, author and journalist based in Britain. His latest publication, The Madness of Crowds, is a bestseller and book of the year for the Times of London and the Sunday Times. Murray is an associate editor for The Spectator Magazine, and he is a regular contributor to the National Review. What got you into thinking about this and writing this? Mm. Because I ran across originally because I pulled up the old Scottish book from the middle of the 19th century. Oh, yes. Terrific book. Yeah, and That led me to you. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So what led you to decide to write this? Because it's really a very daring and provocative book.
4: Well, it's lots of things. I'd noticed for some years that there were a set of very strange things going on, uh, things that I now recognize to be a form of societal malware, that is, things that are being injected into our society, into our discourse, which seem intended to derange us and are indeed having that effect. The fact that in the last decade in particular, particularly since the 2008 financial crisis, we've just seen a set of cultural issues just roar back and roar back in a more dementing manner than ever. And really what I noticed was that this was happening in four areas in particular, everything to do with people who are gay, everything to do with relations between sex is everything to do with race and particularly the newest one everything to do with trans and that we were losing the ability to think and even speak about these issues and were being told versions of them that were demonstrably visibly not just untrue but malevolent and i wanted to explain how i think that's happened and to help other people feel their way through all of this madness.
3: I agree with you. And I often think of some of the waves of madness that would go through the Middle Ages, the flagellante and others. What do you think happened that suddenly you have sort of a catalytic moment and large elements of the society lose their mind?
4: I think it's quite a lot of things. One is when the economics goes wrong, other things start to happen. And we know that from history, great revolutionary moments, tend to occur because the economics have gone wrong. And in our time, uh, the economics went badly wrong in 2008, and we sort of assumed that nothing would flow from it. I think that what has flowed from it is that there are a set of ideas that were waiting in the wings. And in America, in particular, this malevolent set of ideas that was waiting in the wings is this set of ideas that interprets everything to do with our existence as rotating around the same set of issues. As I say, everything to do with racism, sexism, homophobia, and that we should best understand the world by seeing it as a set of rights struggles, a demand for rights for ever more niche issues, and an interpretation of our societies as being primarily best understood by seeing them as hierarchical entities that need to be assailed and torn down. This is an interpretation of our societies. I think it's a malevolent one and one that's demonstrably going to cause great unhappiness. But I think that one of the things that we've allowed to happen is this solitary interpretation of our society. It's an interpretation that has been worked at, particularly from the American Academy, since about the 1970s and now has just blown out onto the streets because it's been taught to and imbibed by an entire generation of people.
3: It's kind of amazing. I take it back to Maracusa Mm. at Berkeley in in the early 60s. I went back as part of trying to understand what's happening in the US. I went back and looked at the period 1967 to 72 when we had 2,500 bombings, and there was a really intense left-wing political revolutionary movement that had not metastasized into all the other opportunities that you described, but it was really very serious and they were really very determined to tear down and destroy the system that they had grown up in. They were defeated by, in the early 70s and basically went underground to the academic world, the news media, etc., and then just kept growing. Today they're the dominant energy force, for example, on our campuses by huge margins. There was no countervailing repudiation. We haven't found Burke explaining why the French Revolution is crazy. We, we haven't had the yearbook is a contribution in this direction. But we really haven't had somebody effectively stand up and begin to explain why militant repudiation is a legitimate response to people who are crazy
4: all of these strands go into it there's a couple of others one is obviously whatever one's view of it the decline of religion as an explanation for our existence and what we're meant to be doing in this life in the absence of a religious narrative other pseudo-religious narratives flood in and what is this new movement but of religious narrative? You mentioned flagellants earlier. And of course, we've actually seen footage in recent weeks of flagellants back on the streets, this time in America, with some footage, I think it was like a lot of crazy things in our time from Portland, Oregon, of white men flaying themselves until they had welts on their backs and black Americans rushing over to them and saying, don't do this. We don't want you to do this. But there is this religiosity in the movement that we're talking about. And there is this other issue which you just mentioned, which is this sublimated Marxism not too sublimated in some cases. And I mention, as you know, in the manners of crowds, the way in which certain academics in the Marxist and neo-Marxist tradition say this completely openly. The working class by the 1980s had badly let them down because the working class never showed up for the revolution in significant enough numbers in countries like yours and mine. And so these Marxists and neo-Marxists went out to look for new groups they could cohere to form the revolution this time, and certain of them were completely open about this, as I cite in The Madness of Crowds, people who said, we're going to need the women, and we're going to need gays and others, we're going to need racial minorities. These groups will give us the revolution that the working class failed to provide.
3: Heilbronn, who was a Marxist economic historian, Mm. wrote a piece in 91 and said, now that Marxism and the Soviet model has failed, we need a replacement. And he proposed that the environment was a great issue around which to build a new movement to fundamentally challenge capitalism. I actually taught in the early years of the environmental movement, participated in the Second Earth Day. But there's a pattern which you also mentioned. You take it into zones of cultural dialogue. But if you go back, there's this recurring pattern of catastrophism. You have Alec writing things which are demonstrably, 55 years later, insane. None of the things that he talked about, Britain would be starving by the year 2000. (laughs) Something he actually put in one of his books. None of the stuff occurred, and it just didn't matter.
4: There's a recent example. We don't even have to go back that far. Just before the arrival of coronavirus, We were all being told that we lived in an environmental crisis. Governments were being asked to agree that we were in a climate emergency. And governments in Europe did agree to that. Many opposition parties in Europe and America were demanding that our governments agreed that we were in a climate emergency. And one of the fascinating things about this is that we start to see, among other things, the degree to which certain people are completely sincere about this. I mean, there are maniacs and fanatics, Extinction Rebellion being a very good example, who don't even try to disguise it. They even dress up as fanatics from the Middle Ages for their sort of theatrical protests. But along with that are these other people for whom this is essentially, I think, performative. Performative rage. They say that we are in an emergency, but when a real emergency comes along they actually behave totally differently. If we had been in the climate emergency that we were being told by Greta Thunberg's weird disciples in the early weeks of this year, if we were in that emergency then we would indeed have seen what we've seen in recent months because of the corona shutdown, we would have seen people completely confined to their households. Yet what happened in the alleged climate emergency was that people carried on life as normal and just said we were living in an emergency. So a lot of this is the difference between what people are willing to perform and a reality that they must somewhere intuit.
3: Do you think that some of the catastrophism in whatever zone we decide the next catastrophe is, that some of that also is a reflection of a secular society's need to have transcendent events
4: Yes, transcendent events and narratives that give life meaning and a sense of purpose, of course. And to an extent, a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is the product of a version of history being taught to young people in particular in America and Western Europe, which teaches history as a story of emancipation narratives, that is, that history was about getting freer and freer, more and more people getting a franchise. And you get to the stage we're currently at. We are all legally equal in our societies. That doesn't, of course, mean that we're all equally wealthy, equally beautiful or equally talented. But we do have equal rights in countries like America and Britain. But for a lot of people, that revolutionary emancipatory narrative is so incredibly heady. They've been taught that it has given not just meaning, but worthiness to people who've gone before them. And they would like to act in that tradition. And that's why we see people in 2020 portraying countries like America and Britain as if, we are slave countries today slave running slave owning countries today claiming that we live in a sort of margaret atwood dystopian relationship between the sexes, society and all of this because if you can portray your society as that sexist racist homophobic and so on then you can stand athwart it and say, I am in the legacy of Martin Luther King and the Stonewall rioters, and I am fighting an equal dragon. And this gives a significant number of people a sense of purpose in their lives. And I think that as well as refuting the specific allegations that are made, I think it is the job of more adults to say, This isn't a good way to find meaning. This will lead to an unhappy and unfulfilled life, not least because you will find yourself trying to slay dragons that no longer exist.
5: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world.
1: And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets.
2: The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all
1: or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I like the imagery you're developing there because it just sort of hit me. You can write a very cool book about the dragon slayers. Maybe the title should be Desperately Seeking
0: Dragons.
3: (laughs) Because as each dragon disappears and as modern society, in fact, solves the problem, then there has to be a desperate search for the next dragon. These people need the game of let me trump you. Part of what you're describing is a compulsory rush to extremism. Mm. So if you take, for example, the anti-male cycle, whatever last year's repudiation of men was, if I'm a feminist, I now have to come up with an even more intense and harsh repudiation so that I'm showing progress in Mm. the anti-male business. And the people who founded Black Lives Matter, who are all three Marxists, even they in their descriptions of who ought to be involved, a black transgender person would be seated at the head of the table by definition. (laughs) Yes. And you'd come down the list, and finally at the other end of the table, you would get to somebody who was engaged in traditional sexual identities and therefore unworthy.
4: The white heterosexual man would be at the lowest rung. The strange hierarchy which has been created, which we've seen all through our lives emerge, whereby instead of being blind to identity traits, they've become all-consuming and all-important. And the second thing is this very strange issue you just touch on there with the, as it were, the black trans magical person. I've been very struck in recent weeks in particular in the Black Lives Matter protests that this thing of the black trans person being at the top of the tree. So that you have, for instance, I saw a photo just this morning of a protest in the UK with a whole pile of white, presumably educated, well-educated, probably too well-educated, young British women marching along with banners saying, black trans lives matter. And you think, It's even more bizarre than the Black Lives Matter slogan, which hectors as if there are people going around saying black lives don't matter. But here are people saying black trans lives matter as if there are people going around saying black trans lives don't matter. But what is interesting about it is where are these black trans people that you are so completely obsessed by? That you've turned them into these all-consuming and i would argue strangely magical beings who are needed to give your movement purpose we have this strange hierarchy of magical people who bestow some blessed presence on the boring mere heterosexual white western woman or man and who they seek out for even when they exist in, as they presumably do, exceptionally small numbers.
3: It's almost like the rarer you are, the greater the multiplier of your influence.
4: Yes, and there's so much that's wrong with this. It is completely opposed to the idea of knowledge and of education and of learning. It's also, by the way, completely opposed to the ideas of creativity and imagination, Because all of this suggests that we are only what our characteristics can make us. So if we're a man, we cannot deal with or imagine ourselves in any way to have an understanding of women and vice versa. And that if you're white, you can't understand anyone black. And if you're heterosexual, you can't understand anyone gay and so on and so on until you get to the black trans person who nobody can understand. But everybody has to talk about all the time. And the oddity of this is that, of course, you can have certain characteristics which may be quite rare, such as being a black trans person, which proportionately is an unusual thing to be, but it doesn't bestow any special knowledge. And the level beneath that is, it doesn't mean that you can impart any special wisdom. I would submit that a white man who has read a lot of books and traveled widely and traveled and seen different cultures and acquired knowledge is going to know more than a black trans person who hasn't read very much hasn't gone around the world very much but our era says that the first of those must submit to and listen to the second and not just on some issues but apparently on all And this is completely against the idea that we, whatever our characteristics, whether we're black, white, gay, straight, trans, whatever, can actually acquire knowledge in this life by speaking with people and learning. It's completely against that. It says you're set from the get-go.
3: In a sense, it's a new caste system. If this were to continue and become dominant, it would generate a caste structure that would be truly weird.
4: Yes. The only thing that might preclude it happening, as you know, is that on this particular occasion, the sort of magical Brahmin class are too small in number. And the number of people that they are trying to depict as the worst people happen to be the majority. For instance, in a majority white country like Britain, that to be white is de facto to be an oppressor and a bigot. And I cannot see a movement succeeding long-term that says that heterosexual people are worse than gay people and that men have to step down and shut up. I cannot see, unless the intimidation narrative continues in more and more inventive ways, even then I can't quite see that this can work simply in a numbers terms.
3: I've started doing a series of podcasts entitled Shut Your Mouth, in which we look at the ways in which the totalitarian left gets people fired. You say the wrong thing and you're gone. The last time they tried this in the late 60s, early 70s, it did collapse because in the end, people just said that's garbage and they weren't willing to do it. But interestingly, even back then, you had a hierarchy in that the people who belonged to the most radical white groups were desperate for the approval Of the Black Panthers because they had decided in their worldview that the Black Panthers were a morally superior group. And the Black Panther attitude was that these people were crazy. There was no circumstance that the Black Panthers wanted them to be anywhere near them because they actually misunderstood why they were called Black Panthers.
4: Some of those people who sought to be fellow travelers with the Panthers seeing the violence not just the violence of the rhetoric, but the actual violence that the Panthers were willing to use.
3: I think that affected some people, and you had an even bigger split among the white groups because the Weathermen, for example, Mm. ultimately were much more violent than the Panthers. The Weathermen probably set 2,500 bombs. The Panthers had nothing like that. They were direct action with pistols. There were never very many of them. But part of the difference was in that period, you still had a press corps which wanted to somehow unify the country. They were anti-segregation, but not committed to a world in which radical values should dominate. Today, I would argue that, at least in America, our news media is as radical as any other element that's out there. And so you really are seeing places like The New York Times totally taken over now. So mm. the ability to communicate has changed very dramatically since yes. the sixties. To what extent do you think that the rise of the social media, Google, Twitter, Facebook, to what extent do you think they've been a part of this maximization of weirdness?
4: I think it's a huge part. I mean, firstly, on the old media, an awful lot of things are going on. And in America, I think it's perhaps worst of all in that very few organs of opinion there can be opened and trusted. And that is a disaster because, of course, if we can't agree on the facts on what deserves to be covered, then no wonder that we end up disagreeing on solutions and answers to problems. When you have these sorts of, you know, only 27 policemen injured yesterday in a peaceful protest sort of headline, then you've got no hope of really answering anything because you haven't had the problem honestly presented to you. And I think that's come about because of something I've described in the past as being the way in which certain stories come along that the press cannot report honestly, because if they did, it might lead the public to consider answers that the media in question don't want them to think about. This is a significant problem in all of our sense-making apparatus at the moment. As for the social media companies, this is a major part of the derangement. I address it briefly in my chapter on tech and the madness of crowds, as you know, which is that, to a great extent, the social media companies have added to this problem and made us have to run on the treadmill of the news at a speed faster than our legs can carry us. We can't keep up with the flow of information. We can't agree on which information flows we should use. And we are zooming off with different narratives of our own as a result. And I think, to return to this analogy I use, I think the social media companies are giving us forms of societal malware. That is, they say to us, we are updating your mental software today. And in fact, what they're doing is persuading us to download mental malware that is designed to corrupt the system of our brains and the system of our thinking. Companies like Twitter provably distort the information flows we're getting. They provably give us things we don't want and pretend that they're things that we do. I use the example of Google image searches in the madness of crowds and demonstrate the way in which Google image searches pretends that it's doing one thing and actually is doing another. So that it pretends that it's giving the person what they're asking for when they ask for a particular set of images, but actually gives them something that's meant to be improving so that the image searches come back with things that are overtly not just anti-racist but advocating a specific line in the anti-racism narrative not just pro-gay but anti-anti-gay or anti-anyone who might be perceived to be anti-gay so that we can no longer trust the search engines And this, of course, particularly for a young person growing up in this, is absolutely dementing because it's hard enough for those of us whose brains were formed before this revolution in thinking and technology and the presentation of knowledge. And it is almost completely bewildering for somebody who has grown up at the same time as this revolution has been going on in the way in which we acquire facts and knowledge.
3: So when you look out over the next 10 to 20 years, are you optimistic that we will come out of the cycle of madness, or do you expect it to get worse?
4: I expect it to get a lot worse. I believe that at the beginning of the coronavirus earlier this year, there was something very interesting in particularly my own country in Britain, which was that we had been said in recent years to be a divided country, but in fact, we did listen and follow the advice of a conservative prime minister acting on scientific advice and stayed in our homes for months on end. And that was a very interesting moment for me because I thought, well, we've been saying we were divided, but actually we did unite when we were told to do something that we were persuaded was for our good. Whether that was correct or not is, of course, perhaps a question for another day. But this showed that there are residual pockets of trust in our societies. I think America demonstrated that even a virus couldn't be seen without it being seen through a pro- or anti-Trump prison. And I think there's a particular American tragedy in that. But what has been interesting in the last two months, particularly since Minnesota and the death of George Floyd, has been that actually these things have roared back. Everything I write about in The madness of Crowds has roared back with a greater unpleasantness than happened before. And that suggests to me that these identity issues have now become completely implanted as the means by which people are expected to understand our societies. Now, I think that the best answer to that is a small c conservative answer, which is to say these things that we are being told are the answers are, in fact, dementing. And if you would like an answer to that, it is to look to a different way of thinking and a different way of reacting to things to see the past for instance as a guide to you and a friendly helpful guide for you in your life that it's much better to see the past in this light for instance than to see it as this thing we scour through to attack and lambast and assault and assail and to pull down To take a quote I was reading recently, to see history as us standing on the shoulders of giants in order to see further. And that the reason we can see further today is because of what we're standing on. Not this crazy, dementing, revolutionary narrative that says we must tear down everything on which we've been standing, but to say there's a reason why we are where we are. And acknowledging that the past is never perfect, like the present is never perfect. Nevertheless, it is what we're building on. This is a very deep fundamental alteration in which we should be encouraging people to change the way we're looking at the past as well as the present. And I think we can do that, but it relies on enough people with a memory of how we used to think and know having the confidence to say the thing you are being offered in this age is bad for you. And we have an interpretation, an understanding, I would say. Indeed, you might even say a sort of resolution with our past and an understanding of how we might approach the future, which is better suited, not just to get to a better place, but better suited for you and your life to live your life with more meaning and with more forgiveness and understanding of what it is we're doing here than this zero-sum, retributive, revolutionary pose.
3: I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us today. I really think what you're doing is extraordinarily important and that you're a pioneer who is going to have a very, very large impact.
4: Well, that's very kind of you. It's a great pleasure to be with you and a great pleasure to be able to spend this time talking today.
3: Thank you to my guest, Douglas Murray. You can read more about the culture wars and his book, The Madness of Crowds, on our show page at newsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeart Media. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Slump. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendle. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com questions i'll answer them in future episodes if you've been enjoying nate's world i hope you'll go to apple podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about on the next episode of News world sean hannity has a new book coming out this tuesday called live free or die america and the world on the brink about the left's undying commitment to turn america into a land our parents founders and framers would not recognize. At the heart of our conversation, though, is our 30-year friendship and how Sean got his start in radio. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.